Okay, people. Here's somebody's uh, posting. If the history of Avesta is unknown, and this book is thought to be more of a moral story than a historical document, why was it chosen to be included in the canon? Well, here are my five answers. Why is Esther in scripture? Um, it's nothing to do with it being a moral story. I don't think it's really anything to do with it. Well, a little bit to do with it being a moral story, but not just that. Um, we don't know much about the origin of the book. I assume that it's a basically historical story about an attempted genocide. Um, uh, it's in the canon, at one level, the answer to the question, why, it's in the, why is it in the canon, <coughs> is because it's kind of typological with regard to the nature of Jewish experience. It's the biblical discussion of anti-Semitism. It's a story that um, maybe is told as if it's told by a Gentile, and that might be one of the reasons why there's no references to God and no references to Israel. Um, as uh, Gordis suggests in his article, the, um, the guys I've mentioned on this sheet, the references are all in the um, list of books about Esther in the course notes. Gordis suggests that in effect it's told as by a Gentile, as I say, and that's one reason for there not being reference to God or to Israel, though I'll come to some more significance of that in a minute. Luther uh, said, I wish this book did not exist at all. It Judaizes too greatly. And that tells you one of the reasons why it's important. Bernhard Anderson, uh, a great Old Testament theologian um, of the kind of third quarter of the um, 20th century, the latter part of the 20th century, it unveils the dark passions of the human heart. Envy, hatred, fear, anger, vindictiveness, pride. A Christian minister cannot take his text from Esther. Well, I disagree radically with that. Peter Ackroyd, another Old Testament scholar from the latter part of the 20th century, the book owes its popularity to the way it expresses the kind of situation the Jewish community has often found itself in, evoking an unreasoning hatred from the people it lives among because of the distinctiveness of its ways and knowing that its very existence depends ultimately not on political or military power, but on God's deliverance or on God's providence. And Michael Fox, a Jewish writer, in his book on Esther, says this. Although I doubt the historicity of the Esther story, and that's kind of funny because I, as a Gentile uh, Christian, have more of a view about, a higher view of the historicity of the story apparently than this um, Jewish scholar. Uh, every year at Purim, that's the festival when the Esther book is read uh, in about February time, when I hear the scroll read in the synagogue, I know that it is true, whatever the historical accuracy of its details. Indeed, I relive its truth and know its actuality. Almost without an effort of imagination, I feel something of the anxiety that seized the Jews of Persia upon learning of Haman's threat to their lives, and I join in their exhilaration at their deliverance. Except that I do not think there, but my deliverance. We are concluding, he's writing in the 1990s, a century blackened by anti-Semitic horrors. From 1903 to 1906, hundreds of Jews were killed and thousands raped, mutilated and despoiled in a series of pogroms in southern Russia, particularly around Kishinev and Odessa. In 1919 to 1920, the remnants of the hapless Ukrainian nationalist army 
along with masses of peasants and opportunists, eased their frustrations by murdering some 100,000 of the Jews who came within their grasp. A generation later, the persecutor of the Jews, Hitler, no longer had to resort to ruse, but could proceed directly to execute his scheme with the enthusiastic participation, or at least the criminal complicity, of most of his subjects. One third of the Jews in the world were wiped out, billions of others tormented beyond telling. Heyman's goal, to slaughter, slay and destroy all the Jews, young and old, was nearly realised. And other Heymans are always waiting to revive the attempt. Although I have not personally faced danger, I, like many Jews, have a sense of narrow, accidental escape. My grandfather left Odessa just before the pogroms, and I happened to be born outside the reach of Nazi power. Too many others whose destinies took a slightly different turn did not escape. The Heyman legend has pursued us through history as an ongoing potential. Thus I know the sense of precariousness that impelled Esther's author to insist on the inner powers of a vulnerable people, but also, somewhat irrationally, on the certainty of their deliverance. As the annual reading of the Esther scroll comes to an end, I breathe a sigh of relief. But this expresses a prayer more than a certitude, for the resolution of the crisis is less believable than its onset. Still, the dramatic intensity of the tale propels us forward from the danger to the deliverance with such momentum that we find ourselves accepting the truth of the deliverance as well. The literary force of the narrative thus helps us to believe, or at least affirm, that relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews, even when God is hidden, as he seems to be in the Esther story, and as he has been so often, so inexplicably, so unforgivably throughout history. Richard Baucom, in a great book called The Bible in Politics, the Bible in politics. Beneath the entertaining surface of the story, and if you laughed when you were um, reading it together, that's fine, it's the story of a political attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. It's about the Jewish people's survival in the context of the threat of anti-Semitism. It's because Mordecai won't bow to Haman. He says they pose a political problem that can be solved only by their elimination. This is not an ordinary pogrom, but a genuine final solution to the Jewish problem, as Hitler called it. In a speech in 1939, Hitler said, In the course of my life I have very often been a prophet and have usually been ridiculed for it. During the time of my struggle for power, it was in the first instance the Jewish race which only received my prophecies with laughter when I said that I would one day take over the leadership of the state and with it that of the whole nation and that I would then, among other things, settle the Jewish problem. Their laughter was uproarious, but I think that for some time now they have been laughing on the other side of their face. Heyman... Um, Balcom notes um, is uh, a type an example of the kind of tyrants who persecuted the church but it's important to note that this, is story, this story is distinct to be a story about Jewish survival it's the biblical discussion of anti-Semitism
Second, it's an expression of the way that God often works in history. Here's this extraordinary fact about it, that it contains no reference to God, to Israel, or to prayer. It has many of the same motifs and themes um, as the stories of Israel and Egypt in the time of Joseph and the time of Moses. But here, God's activity is behind the scenes. God receives no mention. God saved Israel from Persia as from Egypt, but his intervention is presented only in a veiled way. Uh, as Jay Loda puts it in his article, which again is mentioned on the bibliography. And there's thus a big difference, as somebody noted in their posting and asked about, between the, the biblical book of Esther and the version that you get in the deuterocanonical writings, the longer version in the Apocrypha, which has got loads of references to God in it. How interesting that it should be not the version in the Old Testament in the strict sense, but the version outside the Old Testament that's got the references to God. Uh, as if people di didn't feel the book of Esther was complete, like they didn't feel that Mark's gospel was complete, so they kept adding end endings to it. It's funny how God's inspiration is so different from human understandings of what, inspira what inspired books ought to be like. The book of Esther's lack of reference to God's acts uh, does encourage believers to take seriously their own responsibility for history and for the destiny of God's people and of the possibility that they need to risk their own lives for their sake. History is made by people. God's wonder in the book of Esther comes about through the normal processes of nature and history. The whole story hinges on the fact that the king has a sleepless night. The, um, the way in which it talks about God behind the scenes and God working through things, through coincidences, through human responsibility, reminds you in some ways of the wisdom books that we'll come to when we come to look at uh, Proverbs, for instance. And Gordius, again, the Jew a Jewish writer, has um, suggested that the, that the characters in the book of Esther embody uh, wisdom and folly. Hazawaris the king is the powerful but stupid um, king. Mordecai and Esther are the wise people. Haman is the cunning schemer. It's like the Exodus story in the sense that it talks about God's deliverance, but it doesn't talk directly about that, and God doesn't deliver by intervening. And likewise, it's like the Joseph story, Except that in the, Joseph, in the Joseph story, after you've been told simply all, all about how things work out without there being any reference to God, and at the end Joseph said, ah, God meant, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There's no verse like that in the Esther story. It's about a Jew at a foreign court whose efforts save the entire Jewish people. Um, it's about the importance of coincidences. Um, but it's God who is hidden even at every stage in the telling of the story. It's been suggested that the model for the telling of the story was uh, the Exodus story, but also the Joseph story. But those differences between the Exodus story and the Joseph story are, are very um, significant. Uh, 
Um, not only so, but God um, works salvation through a woman. Well, that's not very plausible, is it? Although, again, you can compare it with the Exodus story, which wouldn't work were it not um, for the activity of Miriam and the Pharaoh's daughter and the midwives and Moses' mother. Maybe it presupposes something of that second temple context that I was talking about with regard to Chronicles. That is, when you look back um, at your story um, as a Jew, you can just about start using the word Jew with regard to Esther. You can see how God's activities could be seen. But God's activities can't be seen now. It doesn't mean they aren't there, but you have to look behind the surface of what happens in order to see them. Barkham again comments, the writer wants the reader to discern God's activity in the story as we um, see the key role of coincidence and the key role of human action. David Klein's in his article about, about Esther, God is more and more conspicuous the more he is absent from the story. It's an expression of the way God works in history. Somebody in their posting wondered whether the reason for not mentioning God's name uh, was something to do um, with uh, the name not being able to be mentioned. Um, but then more or less answers, or somebody else answers their, their question. Um, it, it wouldn't have surely been a problem for Jews to acknowledge their adherence to Yahweh, no. I think there is more a theological point going on, as I've suggested, in the way in which the story is told. Thirdly, the story reflects the realities of power in the world as it is. <clears throat> uh, William Fuerst, in his commentary, observes that the Esther story is not about what should happen, but about what does happen. Uh, it all is also illustrates about how, how it's not about what you know, but who you know. You could say, Mordecai is the schemer. Get as much power as you can and use it. It's not, in that sense, about ethics. It works with the realities um, of power in the world as it is. Um, and that's um, part of the significance of the way in which Esther as a woman plays a key role in the story. Here is uh, Sidney Ann White in her paper which is called a feminine model, Esther, a feminine model for Jewish diaspora. The variety of lives that women have led at different times and in different sorts of society make up a dictionary of survival techniques. There are two groups in any society, the powerful and the weak, the dominants and the subordinates. A subordinate group has to concentrate on basic survival, not on attaining power. However, in order for the powerful to maintain their power, the weak must acquiesce to the relationship. Maintaining power by force doesn't work for long. <coughs> Incidentally, uh, much of what we've seen, in, particularly in the Middle East over the past year or two, illustrates the, uh, the point she's making here. Women have nearly always been among the weak in any society, 
and the adjustments that women have made during centuries spent as subordinate parties in a power relationship illuminate the whole range of power situations. The Jews in the diaspora are also in the position of the weak as a subordinate population under the dominant Persian government. They must adjust to their lack of immediate political and economic power and learn to work within the system to gain what power they can. In the book of Esther, their role model for this adjustment is Esther. Not only is she a woman, a member of a perpetually subordinate population, but she is an orphan, a powerless member of Jewish society. Therefore, her position in society is constantly precarious, as was the position of Jews in the diaspora. With no native power of her own, owing to her sex or position in society, Esther must learn to make her way among the powerful and to cooperate with others in order to make herself secure. And then later White says, The fact that Esther is a woman emphasises the plight of the, Jews in the, of the Jew in the diaspora. The once powerful Jewish nation, well it was only powerful for a very, for a hundred years actually in David and Solomon's time, has become a subordinate minority within a foreign empire, just as Esther, as a woman, is subject to the dominant male. However, by accepting the reality of a subordinate position and learning to gain power by working within the structure rather than against it, the Jew can build a successful and fulfilling life in the diaspora, as Esther does in the court of Ahasuerus. David Kleins, in his paper on Esther, um, puts the point more strongly um, and he deals with the question that somebody asks in their posting I'd really like you to talk about Vashti in a favourable light I don't know why that means you're usually used to um, uh, hearing about Vashti, Vashti in an unfavourable light though you can probably see why because obviously she's, a, she's um, a threat to uh, men who want to be in control um, as is explicit in the story As a woman, Vashti becomes a character in her own right in this story. She is, she is not just a foil to, ha to Ahasuerus. And as a woman, she earns our applause for res resisting the king's intention to display her as a sex object before his drunken cronies. Since she is regarded by the male as significant only for her body, and since she depends on no argument or principle or precedent to excuse her non-compliance to his sexist demands, but simply asserts her human right to say no, we find ourselves hailing her as the first, perhaps the only, radical feminist in the Bible. The feminist issue in the book of Esther, he says later in this paper, is it may be suggested whether power truly reside, resides in the males, as the conventional wisdom both Persian and Jewish would have it, in other words, that's, that would be the attitude that would be taken in the culture, whether you were Persian or Jewish. In the case of the Vashti episode, we are being invited to consider the question, where does power truly lie? Is it with the king, who has well-nigh universal power, but of whose power it becomes plain at the first opportunity that it is always open to resistance? Or does it not rather lie with Vashti, 
who knows how to take the power she needs for her own self-determination. He can be thwarted. She, however, provided she stands her ground, cannot. As if to underline the fact that the issue is one of power, the king's response to Vashti is simply one of anger. He can't do anything. She has done nothing illegal, but has only made him lose face. The issue of power in sexual politics is further explored in the response of the princes of Persia to the news of Vashti's disobedience. They unhesitatingly assume that throughout the empire it will be the signal for wives, long suppressed, to start rising in rebellion against their husbands, and there will be contempt on the wives' part and wrath on the husbands' part in plenty. This truly hysterical assumption can only mean that the men feel threatened and that male supremacy is being depicted as resting on the flimsiest of foundations. Maybe it's not so un-Jewish because there's nowhere in the Old Testament where it says that wives have to obey their husbands. That's only said in the New Testament. <laughs> the issue of power underlies the portrait of Esther also even if less obviously. Esther is an altogether different type of woman from Vashti, a traditional woman, no radical feminist, but a beauty queen, a charmer. In the narrative about Esther herself, there is not the open satire that we've met with in chapter 1. But we are not supposed to forget that her king is a shallow and nervous male chauvinist, and that it is he who sets the style for the relation between the sexes in Persia. Esther is a conventional beauty queen who wins favour and status both in the harem and with the king on the basis of her charm. Equally conventionally, she is also the dutiful adopted daughter who does everything Mordecai tells her to. Yet there is another dimension to the image of Esther. The scene between her and Mordecai in chapter 4, in which they communicate across the boundary between the inside and the outside, is crucial to establishing her as the central figure through whom the deliverance for the Jews must come, if it is to come at all. Mordecai in this chapter treats her for the first time as an adult, in a sentence that is at the same time, at the same moment, uh, sorry, in a sentence that in the same moment underlines her alienation from her people and her identity with them. Think not that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Esther, after this, is the one who is in confident command. The book as a whole portray, uh, purports to portray a triumph for a woman. Its name is Esther's. And, this, and it is the story of her success as a woman over her upbringing as a traditional woman and over the expectations of her as a woman at the Persian court. Even so, the ending of the book raises some doubts about how thorough, how thorough a success hers is because it's eventually Mordecai who writes the letter at the end. The ultimate victory in the sexual politics of the book of Esther comes not in the Hebrew book, however, but in the Greek version. Here the whole story becomes framed by narratives of the dream of Mordecai and its interpretation. The male has finally edged Esther out of her triumph. Fourthly, Esther draws attention to the peculiar theological significance of the Jewish people, which is a different point from the anti-Semitism one, a more theological one. 
The story is the story of God's preserving of Israel. Maybe the most significant piece of writing you could read about Esther is uh, the, the article written by a Swiss scholar called uh, Fischer, but spelt the way it's spelt on, that, um, on the sheet on page 39, V-I-S-C-H-E-R, which was written in 1939 as the war was about to start. Um, and in that, in, in that article uh, about Esther, Fischer talks about the particularity of God's purpose as God is involved with the Jewish people uh, and makes a link between the story uh, of um, the story in Esther and Paul's discussion of the significance of the Jewish people in Romans 9-11. to The most offensive truth in the whole of Revelation, he says, is the fact that God has connected himself indissolubly with Israel's history. At the end of that discussion of the position um, of the Jewish people in Romans 9 to 11, Paul declares, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all, all Israel will be saved. God's relationship with Israel is a mystery. Um, in a way, the quote from Fox I gave you at the beginning about God's absence from, from the Jewish people's history says that, but from a very different angle. God's relationship to the Jewish people is a mystery, but a mystery in biblical talk is a revealed secret. It's something extraordinary that you could never have guessed. That something maybe for a long time was a puzzle. Um, and that's the way in which Paul has had to think about the significance of the Jewish people in Romans 9 to 11. Because the way in which, and it's a very apposite topic for us to be thinking about in Holy Week, the way in which the Jewish people would have nothing to do with, its Messiah, with their Messiah and crucified him, and even when he rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit was poured out, wouldn't come to believe in him. So that the bulk of the Jewish people cut itself apart from its Messiah is a total mystery in light of what the First Testament scriptures have told you about God's involvement with Israel. How could it be? Uh, and in Romans 9 to 11, Paul wrestles to understand the nature of this mystery, to un unravel this mystery, to see an, uh, what on earth God could be doing, and coming to his conclusion that it is, as it were, for our sake that the Jewish people turned away from its Messiah, because that was what led people like Paul to go and focus on the Gentiles, rather than on the Jewish people. And yet that didn't mean that God had abandoned the Jewish people. As Paul says in Romans 9 to 11, God couldn't do that. If God could do that, then God could do it with us. So it's really not in our interests to think that God had abandoned the Jewish people. And in fact, the Jewish people have carried on in existence. And even Hitler couldn't destroy them. It's through the Jewish people that we've all received salvation. Fisher says, Jesus Christ is the fulfiller of the promise of the book of Esther. Does God still protect Israel? 
Well, God still protects the Jewish people. In our time, we have to make a distinction between the state of Israel, which is a state like any other, and the Jewish people, most of whom live outside the state of Israel. And declaring that God is committed to the Jewish people does not mean that you reckon that God is committed to the state of Israel, particularly over against the Palestinians. But it's hard, I think, for Christians to make those distinctions. God still protects the Jewish people. And it's important for us as Gentiles that that's the case. Finally, the book of Esther shows how if you want to survive, you better learn to laugh. The book is a humorous story which encourages Jews to cope with adversity by laughing at their foes and also laughing at themselves. Its purpose is to entertain as well as to instruct. When Jews read the Esther story at Purim, it's a great celebratory occasion. It's a worship occasion, but it's a great fun occasion too. It links with that, with that fact that feasting is a dominant motif in the book. The chauvinism and the humorous side to the chauvinism. Vashti and Esther both are sex objects. And that goes with the exaggeration in the book. The banquet that lasts, lasts six months. The gallows that are 75 feet high, which is about the height of the hotel on the other side of the street. The seven months preparation for entering the harem. The fact that only people who actually attack the Jews are going to be in danger. So 75,000 people do. Um, and then the irony with which the book ends. B.W. Jones in his uh, paper that I've mentioned on the sheet comments, Pity the theologians who were offended because they couldn't laugh. By contrast... The Jews, who understood, the Jews who maintained a sense of humour in the face of adversity were better able thereby to survive their adversity. It's a book full of irony. Haman wants to dispose of Mordecai but has to take a lead in honouring him. Haman is trying to call for Esther's mercy but the king thinks he's raping her. And it leads up to the ultimate irony Sam Goldman in his paper that I've mentioned on the sheet um, uh, notes and it's significant, it's important that, that he is a Jewish writer writing about Esther it end, leads up to the ultimate irony, irony that the Jews are involved in an act of genocide of the kind that they needed to escape that the Jews end up behaving like the Persians that they aren't a superior race as Persians are convicted at the beginning Jews are convicted at the end Goldman suggests of course, the trouble with irony, it's always dangerous because people may not get it. I mean, most of you are Americans and you certainly won't get it because you don't understand about irony at all. <laughs> the book of Esther shows how if you want to survive, you better learn to laugh. Um, let me just see in the last couple of minutes if there's any other of the postings I should say something about. Um, I think that covers most of the things. Anybody in the last minute or two want to say anything? Want to ask anything? Okay, are there some people who want to take uh, the test to just do some more work on the test?
Yeah, okay. Well, in that case, uh, if um, now we'll finish right now. And if those of you, those of you who are leaving, I mean all of you apart from the, those who want to take do more the test, please go quickly so that the people who want to uh, do some more work on the test can do so. See you next week. Uh, I'll email you. Yeah.